0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from Psalm number eight, which is found in pages four hundred fifty and four fifty one of your Pew Bibles. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! Thus says the reading of God's holy word. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what exactly does it mean to glorify God? That's a phrase that we toss around a lot. But do we seldom think about or contemplate what it means? Well, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper helps to explain what it means to glorify God by comparing glorification to magnification. He says when you magnify something like a telescope, you make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. With a Hubble Space Telescope, for example, pinprick galaxies in the night sky are revealed for the billion-star giants that they truly are. And that, I believe, is what it's like to glorify God. To glorify God is to magnify his greatness, his power, his love, his wisdom, and his goodness for all the world to see. And that's exactly what's happening in our passage tonight. In Psalm 8, King David is glorifying or magnifying the greatness and goodness of God for us all to see. And he begins by addressing God as Lord. Now, you'll notice that word Lord, that first one is in all capitals, which, as we all know, stands for God's covenant name, Yahweh. This is a name by which God revealed himself to Moses and by which he entered into a personal and saving relationship with his chosen people. Next, David goes on to describe Yahweh as Lord, lowercase Lord. And this second Lord is not God's covenant name, but rather it's a title like master or king. And so we see right off the bat, in the way that David is addressing God here, that if God is to be truly glorified amongst us, he must be known by us as both our Savior and our Lord. Meaning that we must trust in him for our salvation, as well as submit ourselves to his will for our lives. We must trust in him for our salvation and submit to his will for our lives. Well, then David continues to glorify God in our passage by declaring, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And here, the great John Stott comments on this verse saying, Here is a recognition. Of the majesty of God's name or nature, which his works reveal in both earth and heaven. In other words, Stott is saying if you want to know something of the greatness and goodness of God, you only need to look around at his creation. For all of creation bears witness to the surpassing excellence of God's character. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1 saying, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And likewise, the psalmist in Psalm 19 declares, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. But what's interesting and unique about our passage tonight in verse 1 is that instead of saying that exact same thing, that God's glory can be seen in the heavens, David says that God has set his glory above the heavens. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that God has put his glory above the heavens? Well, it kind of means what King Solomon means when he offers his prayer of dedication upon the completion of the temple. In First Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon prays saying this, The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. Now in that passage, King Solomon is making the point that God is far too great to be contained in creation, let alone in a man-made temple. And David, in our psalm, is making a very similar point. David is saying that as wonderful as God's creation is, it's still not enough to adequately express the greatness of God and his glory to us. Thus God has set his glory above the heavens. Think of the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. The most beautiful sunrise. The most picturesque picturesque, starry night sky. All of it is a pale comparison to the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God's character. And James Boyce explains this point very well in his commentary on the Psalms. He writes this, The reason the creation, wonderful as it is, cannot exhaust the glory of God is that God is its maker. So although creation expresses his glory, revealing his existence, his wisdom, and great power, it is only a partial revelation of the surpassingly greater God who stands behind it. And so here, Voice is saying, we are not to look at creation and be content in thinking that when we see it, we can fully understand the God who made it. No, on the contrary, the world around us was meant to inspire us to marvel and wonder at the infinitely greater God who stands behind and above it. You see, creation is meant to make us long for, and desire more of God. And the great thing about God is that because he is infinite, there is always more to the goodness of God to discover and to be in awe of. And yet, sadly, we know that this is not the case for many people, is it? While we ourselves often fail to fully appreciate what creation communicates to us about the glory of our God, there are many people who are altogether blind to the glory of God as it is revealed in creation. Again, John Stott says, the wicked do not and cannot see his glory because they are Are blinded by their proud rebellion. So instead of looking at the world and being inspired to praise God, the wicked instead point the finger at God and only find fault with Him. And that's because they are not content to be mere creatures of God. Instead, the wicked desire to be gods themselves. Take Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, for an example. In that passage, we read this You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now many commentators speculate that those couple of verses that I just read are actually describing for us Satan's original sin which led to his fall from grace. And if they are correct, then this passage reveals that Satan, a mere creature, thought that his own glory could somehow surpass the glory of God and that he would be better suited for God's position than the Lord himself. Now this is a height of blasphemy. And it's exactly this sin that Satan got our first parents in Adam and Eve to buy into as well. Satan convinced Adam and Eve through his lies that they could become like God, but that God was preventing them from doing so. As a result, ever since the time of our first parents, mankind in our prideful rebellion has sought, has sought to dethrone God and to put ourselves in his place. And therefore, we refuse to glorify God. But thankfully, God's will cannot be thwarted. He will not and cannot deny himself the glory that is rightfully due to him. As a result, he puts to shame the proud and the arrogant by saving the weakest and the neediest and the lowliest of sinners who are described in our passage as babies and infants. Now, if I have learned anything about babies and infants after being a father for two years, it is that they are extremely needy very dependent, and oftentimes very foolish. Which is why my wife and I always need to hold back our son Noah from running headfirst into the blazing hot oven whenever we go to open it to cook. Nor are babies and infants always pleasant to be around. In fact, they can be quite self-centered and oftentimes rude and disrespectful. Which is also clearly evident when my son Noah proceeds to throw a temper tantrum after we keep him from running headfirst into the blazing hot oven. And yet such is the case with all of us. None of us here this evening were saved by God because we were the best or the most worthy of people. Actually, the opposite is quite true. We were all saved by God because we were the worst. We are the neediest and the most helpless of sinners. We were those, needless, we were those needy and helpless babies running headfirst into the fires of hell before the Lord our God had mercy on us and so saved us from our sins. But Why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would he show us such mercy? The answer to that question is provided for us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, where he writes, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so, while there may be many people more uh, morally superior to myself, who are smarter and more capable than I, God, in His infinite wisdom, looks past them and instead saves someone as wretched as I am, because it is the most helpless and needy of sinners who are most qualified to recognize the greatness of God and to give him the praise and the glory only he deserves. And in doing this, God triumphs over his proud and arrogant enemies who would seek to deny him that glory and keep it for himself themselves. And so we are learning so far from Psalm 8 that not only... Is our God glorious for both his mighty works of creation, but he's also glorious for his mighty works of redemption and the way in which he triumphs over his enemies? And as David continues to meditate on these two mighty works of God, creation and redemption, he can't help but to ask the big question. Which is why? And this is exactly what we see him asking in verses 3 and 4, where he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man or the descendants of man that you would care for him? In other words, why would a God who is capable of setting the moon and the stars in the night sky with nothing but his fingers, bother to be moved by compassion towards such tiny and insignificant sinners such as ourselves. After all, think about it, everything in creation every second of reality is continually dependent on God keeping that thing in his mind. Therefore, if God wanted to triumph over the wicked and his enemies in the easiest way possible, all he would have to do is to cease thinking about humanity and we would literally be no more. We would vanish from the face of this earth, if God forgot about us for one minute, one second. And yet, for some reason, David says, God continues to remember mankind. And not only does he remember us, but he continues to care about us, even while we wage an unjust and rebellious war against him. And so the question remains, why? Why would such a just and holy and infinitely powerful creator be moved with compassion towards such tiny, weak, foolish, and wicked creatures? And with that question still ringing in our ears... David continues meditating on the greatness and goodness of our God, which does not stop with God remembering and caring for us. (laughs) What we read about in verses 5 through 8 is that God's remembering and caring for us actually moves God to shower us with his blessings. And so in verse 5, we read that God makes him, that is, the Son of Man, Now, the Son of Man here is just another title, a way of referring to mankind's descendants. And so God makes mankind's descendants a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowns him with glory and honor. And not only does God crown this Son of Man with glory and honor, but he gives him dominion That is, he gives him the authority to rule over all of his creation. Verses 6 through 8 say this, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now here, David is without a doubt alluding to God's original creation mandate to Adam and Eve that we can read about in Genesis 1, where God commands humanity saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now in this original creation mandate, God was effectively deputizing Adam and Eve as his vice-regents. Now, a vice-regent is a a ruler, someone who governs on behalf of a greater power. And as God's vice-regents, Adam and Eve were to rule and govern God's creation according to God's will and according to God's standards of justice. As a result, they were, supposed to be, they were supposed to be God's unique image bearers to the rest of the world who would reflect his glory. They were to be living reflections of the glory of God. Tragically, however, Adam and Eve failed to live up to their calling when they sinned against God. Consequently, humanity has lost some of the dominion which God had so graciously, had so graciously given us. Therefore, we are no longer the vice-regents we are, that we were originally called to be. Now, I only bring all this up because it raises the question, or it should raise the question in our minds. How can David, in his time be saying that this is still true of humanity. If we are fallen from grace and therefore by nature children of God's wrath, how can David now in Psalm 8 be saying that God has still crowned the Son of Man with glory and honor and placed all things under his feet? Well, perhaps David here is not alluding back To Genesis 1 after all, but rather looking forward under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ, who would take the title the Son of Man upon himself in order to represent his people before the just and holy God to do what the original Son of Man, that is Adam, could not do which is perfectly and obediently carry out God's will and uphold God's justice here on earth. And indeed, this is exactly what we find in the New Testament, in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, where the author quotes this very passage and attributes it to Christ himself. So then, we are to see that it is Christ who changes everything. It is Christ who makes all the difference. Left alone, you and I, to our own devices, are in fact still children of God's wrath, who cannot and will not stubbornly glorify him. But when we, by the grace of God, put our faith in Christ, submitting to his rule over our lives, we become restored to our original position as God's vice-regents, his image-bearers on earth, who reflect his glory for all the world to see. And so, what does it mean to glorify God? God. It means to be found in Jesus Christ and so be conformed so much to the image of his character that every ounce and aspect of your being reflects something of the goodness and the majesty and the glory of God. And this is our lifelong endeavor. It is our life's goal. Indeed, it is our highest aim. And what's even truly more amazing than all of that is that not only in Christ are we restored to our original position, but we get to share and actually participate in Christ's glory. When we are united to Jesus by faith, we get to share in his crown of glory and honor with him. The Apostle Paul says that we get to become fellow heirs with Christ. What is an heir except someone who inherits all things? Christ has inherited eternal life. He has inherited all of creation. And in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, we actually see saints who died for their faith, sitting on the thrones, judging and ruling the world alongside Christ. That is our destiny, to become fellow heirs with Christ and to sit on thrones alongside him to rule all of creation with him as his brothers and sisters. And so the very thing that Satan and his followers so desperately want for themselves, that is, the glory of God, is actually something that God freely shares with those who are found united in Christ Jesus. And this brings us back to the question, why? Why? Why would such a great and wonderful God show such amazing grace to sinners like you and me? Well, by the time we come to the end of our passage, we're still not given an answer to that big question. I believe other passages in the scriptures do provide insight to that answer. But in the end, I think it's something that is best left unasked, at least for now, because we could spend all of eternity trying to explore the answers to that question. But in the end, I don't believe the question why is the most, re- is the most fitting response to God's amazing works of creation and redemption. Instead of asking why, I think it's best for us to respond the way King David does at the end of our passage. By simply closing with these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Dear God, when we consider the works of your hands and the creation that you have made. Who are we that you are mindful of us, O Lord? What could cause you to move with such compassion and grace and amazing mercy towards us? Lord, we cannot fathom it, but we do revel in it. And we praise your name and we thank you for your infinite greatness, and your goodness towards us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who restores us to what we were originally created to be. And thank you that in him we have an eternal life filled with glory and honor in your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would make this the focus of our hearts and of our lives as we continue to live and move and have our being in this earth. Keep it ever before us that we may hope and long for it and praise you all the days of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.